this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome back to New Books and Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new and exciting book in the study of religion, and we talk with the author. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Cutter Calloway about his great new book, Scoring Transcendence, Contemporary Film Music as Religious Experience, which was published with Baylor University Press in 2013. For many people, film-going is a moment to submerge themselves in a new world of meaning and experience a different reality. While film is prominently defined by its moving images, these alone are not usually able to fully move a viewer. Audiovisual cinema is much more compelling, and music has a unique ability to produce emotive power for the viewer. In Scoring Transcendence, Cutter Calloway addresses how cinematic music uniquely opens up a space that invites the viewer to feel. Through his investigation, Calloway moves beyond the tradition of textual and literary approaches to film and offers us methods for hearing images and seeing sounds. In our conversation, we discuss audience reception, musical transparency, Finding Nemo, filmic narrative, music's theological capacity, Pixar, Western cultural imagination, musical leitmotifs, and Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, among lots of other things. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Cutter Calloway. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Joining me today is Cutter Calloway, and he's here to talk about his great new book, Scoring Transcendence, Contemporary Film Music as Religious Experience. Cutter, how are you doing? Hey, doing pretty well. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for, for writing this very interesting book and paving the way for those people in the study of religion and film who haven't really paid attention to this topic yet, so I think you're, uh, you, you, you've made a great contribution, and thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. That, I appreciate that. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get into the book, uh, tradition here at New Books and Religion is to uh, learn a, bit, a little bit about you. So um, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in the study of religion, how you got interested in the study of film in your case, um, perhaps people that have been influential in either the way you've approached the topic or uh, even that got you interested in the topic in the first place. Sure. Um, you know, well, it, it, goes, it goes probably pretty far back. I'm myself a religious person, um, and, but I, I inhabit a, a space that is increasingly uh, pluralistic and, um, as some might even say, secular, depending on how you define that. Um, so I, I've always, uh, my entire life have sort of existed in a sort of self-consciously in a realm that, um, the particular religion and religious expressions that I practice are one option among many, um, in the contemporary world. And that always just fascinated me, um, that, that, uh, religion, both in its particular manifestations and, uh, more broadly as, as we become an increase. Globalized world 
and and these different sort of tribal identities intersect. Um, sometimes they intersect in really healthy ways, and other times in really unhealthy, even violent ways. Um, and for me, uh, as someone who comes from the Christian tradition, I I I felt both responsible for that intersection, and then also just curious about it. Um, so I, I uh, actually, some of my uh, early days of just professional life um, worked uh, in uh, Protestant uh, churches, uh, both with sort of young adults, emerging adults, and um, most of them were asking questions about culture and its, its sort of intersection with religion. Um, and an intersection actually is not even the right word, but it's blending with, it's merging, it's riffing off of of religion on the one hand, and then religions riffing off of and merging with and drawing from the resources of popular culture. Um, and so it was always uh, something that we explored that I, I dealt with um, on those sort of levels uh, with particular communities of faith, particular religious communities. Well, it happened that, that one of those, um, we uh, went and rented a for our our meeting space, um, an old uh, movie theater. <laughs> it was about the time that um, I was living in Colorado. Some of the larger cineplexes had come into town and uh, had basically put out of business all the the smaller uh, places, the the you know the two and three and sixplex theaters. So we uh, moved in this uh, this particular church uh, group uh, into a sixplex movie theater. So everything we did was literally in um, a <laughs> Our sanctuary was the uh, you know screening room number one you know and we 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 would we were voted uh, most comfortable seats in town by the independent newspaper over and over because they were just the theater seats right um, so it was really fascinating because it was impossible to in, in sort of practice any sort of religious ritual um, without the the kind of specter of of film being there so we naturally uh, showed film. Films as part of our, our worship uh, services. We um, had film nights, film discussion groups. We would lead um, sort of interfaith conversations um, based upon film and, uh, and and any other sort of dialogue that we might have usually incorporated film on some level. So early on, I really just saw the kind of value of, of what film does, both in terms of uh, the questions it raises in terms of religious representations and, and explicit religious content, but also just the medium, the way that it's dialogical, the way that it's conversational really um, is is a great springboard for what I think um, contem- the contemporary world needs in terms of being able to engage with the other, whether that's a religious other, political other, et cetera, um, and, and just saw a lot of value in that. Now, I personally... Uh, to add the music component on there, um, I'm a musician and was trained as a musician from a, from a young age, uh, originally a percussionist and then later a guitarist, vocalist, etc. Um, and it's, as Kierkegaard said, we all live with the wounds of possibility. Um, and, <laughs> and I, uh, I wish at times, there are times I wish that I had, uh, gone all in on my, on my music, um, because, you know, we all want to be rock stars at some point. Um, but I, I went the religious studies route instead of the uh, the music route. So. That sounds better than, than the rock star to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, religious uh, studies scholars get all the chicks. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. That's how it works. Um, so 
but I've, I've always been a musician, still play. Uh, now I have kids. We do a lot of music stuff. And so it was, it was kind of natural. I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of people had commented uh, about the book that on the one hand, it's like, oh, wow, no one's talked about this in the religion and film uh, sort of discipline. But on the other hand, everyone's like, well, duh. Uh, right. I mean, it's it's just, of course, why wouldn't we talk about that? Why would you know that, that it's such an it, it's kind of obvious on one hand and it's almost so obvious that it's transparent to us. Um, so I, I kind of. I guess, stumbled into this topic uh, because it, it, it incorporated um, part of who I am, part of my own experience, um, and then just this um, emerging sort of dialogue of, of how do we place religion and film in conversation? How is film functioning religiously? And to me, it always just seemed pretty self-evident that if you're going to talk about um, the religious dimensions of film and film going, especially, um, it's almost impossible to do so without some reference to uh, what, what's happening with the music. So that really is, you know, I don't want to say it's been a, a work uh, of a lifetime or something, but it's been in the works, I I guess, uh, or, or ruminating uh, for me uh, for, for quite some time. Yeah. Now, uh, can you recall when your thinking about this, which obviously was going on for a long time, started to emerge uh, into a kind of a book format? Sure. Um, early on, I, uh, I studied, I got my PhD at Fuller Seminary, actually, um, and they have a, a program that's <clears throat> uh, basically part systematic theology, part uh, cultural studies, cultural anthropology. Um, and it really was uh, kind of a, an aha moment. I, I, I basically went through, and at the time, it was possible to basically read everything that had been written on religion and film. Um, you know, I, I guess this is 10 years ago now. Um, stuff was starting to be produced uh, at, at higher rates, but still there was a a pretty small group of people writing academically on it. Um, and really, I just, I, I kind of kept coming back to, well, no one's talking about music. Um, and so during, as I was doing my studies there, um, that was kind of the, the realization. And I, I then started saying, well, I'm going to keep reading and see who uh, approaches music. Well, about the same time, I started interacting with um, a guy named Jim Bueller, who works down at the University of Texas, Austin, um, and is a musicologist. And um, really uh, kind of blew my mind in terms of him putting me on to a number of uh, people speaking and, and writing in film music scholarship, which is really kind of siloed from film studies proper. Um, and... What I found fascinating is uh, part of what I what I saw um, among people working in religion and film was that we were really conversant with film studies, um, but nobody had e – well, either they hadn't read or were unable to or um, just were unaware of this whole host of people writing in, in the uh, – in film music studies in particular, most of the musicologists um, and, and music theorists – uh, and so there was probably most religious studies scholars are not also trained um, uh, musicians. And so there's basically a language barrier there. Um, and as soon as I realized, oh, well, I can I'm sort of bilingual in that way. Um, there's a there's a place for this. Um, the challenge <laughs> and this was the great challenge is then I, that that initial thought came to mind. 
was, well, how do you keep from basically alienating everybody? Because on the one hand, you're doing religious study of film, which is sort of a, a, a niche in its own right. And then when you add to that sort of the technical language of music, which in some senses is way more abstract than any sort of academic religious studies, um, there was a chance that only two people on the planet would even be able to to read it. So the big challenge as I realized, oh, there's a gap here, was the reason that, that no one had done it before is because um, it's very difficult to do in a way that, that makes sense to people who um, aren't trained in any one of these uh, various sort of technical vocabularies of religious studies, of film studies, and of musicology. Um, and so that then became the task of how do you write in a way that um, other non-musicians can understand um, because they're religious studies scholars or vice versa. A, a musicologist could understand um, even though they're not initially interested in the study of religion. Well, uh, Cutter, I think you did a very good job. It's very readable, and uh, I, I think anyone remotely interested in religion and film will benefit from reading it. So, um, Yeah. Are you a musician? <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, okay. No, okay, not. well, that's, then that, that, that's good, and then that way it was a success. I guess. Yes, I am a, a layperson. So um, part of, I think, what you're critiquing in the book is uh, the – general tendency for religion and film studies to, to kind of take a textual or literary approach to films. Um, and you, you, you set up the book talking about this relationship between the image track and the soundtrack. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering if you could, you know, kind of lay this out for the listeners. What, what is the relationship sure. between these two? And then where does music fit in since that's not the yeah. only sound happening? Yeah. Um, well, basically, on the on the sort of theoretical side um, of of what a film is at, the, at its very core, and and this, I'm going to say this, and it it could be I, I acknowledge that that there are exceptions to this, um, and and potentially exceptions that undermine the whole thing. So, um, but on on the whole, uh, especially if we're talking about mainstream. Uh, films, um, and even outside of the mainstream, uh, most independent films feature both a um, visual element uh, to this artifact, this text, as we often call it, but that's not helpful, um, which would involve all, all of the uh, things that, that any sort of film studies person would, would worry about. Um, uh, you know, mise-en-scene from, from that to coloring to lighting to uh, editing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you add that to a what I would call the soundtrack, which in my mind, I, at least in the book, split it up into sort of three categories, um, dialogue, sound effects, and then music, um, these are sort of the fundamental elements that, that make a film, um, at least that make the, the object of inquiry as we, we go to sort of analyze it and study it as a cultural artifact. Now, there is behind that, um, <clears throat> you know, a script, and um, there is a, a script writer and a director, et cetera, and, and those are all important. I think they should inform what we do, but in general, when, when we start studying film as, uh, and its religious components, what I, what I saw was a tendency to almost treat it, the film, this artifact, as if it were a script, and so that's where it then becomes um, the the narrative uh, elements of it become important, and it's not 
deny that narrative is not important. It very much is important. Um, I would say, though, that the narrative is structured by and supported by this kind of dialectic between images and sounds. So um, what then occurs is uh, a tendency, even if you get people to say, okay, that makes sense. There's both pictures and sounds. All right, I get it. Um, And that makes up the story that's being told. Um, There's also a tendency to say, but the sounds are basically an add-on that that what we have, the the core sort of ontology of film, and this gets back to sort of, you know, Bazan's uh, 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 what is cinema kind of notion, that it's this photographic image. And so this is part of film studies more broadly, that, that film in its, its most fundamental form is, a, is moving pictures, and that's it. So anytime you add something to it, it's, a, it's an addition, it's an add-on, it's nice, but it's not necessary. Um, and my contention is actually it's it's very necessary. Um, sound has always been a part of at least film exhibition. Um, maybe not necessarily the uh, you know on an actual film strip um, uh, because the technology wouldn't allow it. Um, but at least the way that people that viewers would encounter this film was always this sort of dialectic between um, the images they saw and the sounds that they heard, whatever they may be. And so when you put those together, it's not just image plus sound equals film, but it's this whole new sort of synthesis that emerges um, that, that shouldn't be reduced to any of its sort of constituent elements. Um, and, and I think, and that's where some would, I would say, as I'm being my own devil's advocate, um, would really be where some pushback would come. Uh, there are examples of quote-unquote silent film. Um, there are examples of, you know, one thing that I came across uh, just after the book was published, I was at a film festival where we screened a, a film about a, a deaf wrestler, and most of the cast were uh, people who could not hear, and they were at the film festival, and we provided them scripts so they could follow along with the other films, and I, I said, oh, I need to stop and re- realize that in my arguments for film is fundamentally a audiovisual experience, um, that there are still people that find great meaning, um, religious meaning even, in a film, even if they are unable to hear it. Um, and so I say all that, that I think it, it has some weight to it. I think it has some traction, but um, certainly it, it shouldn't be, I, I think, seen as, as uh, uh, what would be the word, that it's it, not totalizing. I, I realize there's some exceptions to it. Mm-hmm. Now, a uh, large part of what you do throughout the book is you're not only talking about kind of film in and of itself, but the the relationship between the film and the audience, um, and specifically you 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 assert that the the music is for the audience. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about how music specifically functions in a film? Sure. Um, so well, there's two parts to this. Maybe one part is simply the kind of turn within really. Uh, religious studies more broadly, but but especially people working in the kind of religion and film area, is this turn toward the audience, um, and and that is to say that uh, if we're going to say that that films are functioning as religion like, um, so you have John Lydon a number of years ago writing religion as film. So are there are there ways that um, film and film going is functioning as religion. If that's the case, we need to we need to think more clearly about 
how it is that audiences and actual viewers are um, turning to film as resources for their uh, really their lived religion um, and and not even not not sort of formalized um, uh, traditional or institutional religion, but but how they go about their day to day sort of minutia um, as people living in a larger religious landscape. Um, so that turn has was helpful for my book because there was some legitimacy there um, that people are saying, yeah, we need to acknowledge the role that the viewer plays. Um, and for me, as you look at this image track soundtrack, um, and you think about the way that music functions within the film going experience for a viewer. Um, the music, at least in terms of, of how it functions, not necessarily, um, uh, the intentionality by the filmmaker, uh, because that, who that is, is, is so problematic. It's difficult to tell at times. Um, but in the way that it functions within the film going experience, um, music is, uh, the most explicit way that a film reaches out and is communicating something interpretive to the audience. So, uh, a picture, uh, uh, an, an edit, a cut, a piece of dialogue um, can exist kind of autonomously. It has a, an integrity that exists whether or not um, an audience is there. Uh, but when you get, get to music, so much of it has to do with tracking the, uh, the audience's connection to the image um, that it becomes very difficult to justify it as its own sort of narrative, uh, a, a device that's in, inherent or integral to the narrative itself. It becomes a way of communicating that narrative to the audience or drawing the audience into a different or sympathetic or antagonistic, really, reading of the narrative. Um, and, and so I, would you want me to say a little bit about kind of the different ways that that functions or like in particular, or what would be most helpful you think there? Um, well, you do, uh, you offer several kind of analytical approaches in the book going through, yeah. uh, and, and you, you offer very clear kind of lay readings of, of more technical yeah. vocabulary. Um, perhaps yeah. instead of kind of going into the nitty gritty of that, um, you select a number of films that I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with. Sure. Um, so uh, perhaps you can start with um, how you open the book. You, you look at sure. Pixar. And so yeah. perhaps yeah. Why, why Pixar? Why is this a specifically yeah. uh, unique experience for thinking sure. about religion and film? Yeah. Um, yeah, the Pixar <laughs> chapter, I, the, the first revision, um, it was the conclusion um, and moved it to the front um, kind of just to say, hey, here's a... Uh, uh, a, a way into this whole topic because um, you're, you're competing against so many different things uh, when it comes to music. One of which is that <laughs> if it works well, you almost don't notice it at times. And in fact, some, uh, you know, uh, people that, that, that write for film and some directors would even say that, that if you notice the music, it's, it's not actually working well. Um, animated film in particular was interesting to me for two reasons. One, um, it's an animation that we realize that everything is is completely constructed. Um, at least in, in sort of live action films, there are certain givens that the camera can capture. It's still intentional. There's still everything is still constructed, but um, but the the, uh, the the symbolic sort of resources we're drawing from um, are exist out there in the real world somewhere. Um, whereas with animation, every element is painstakingly uh, constructed, and so it. 
it needs and calls upon music in ways that are a bit different than live action um, and actually, I think, highlight um, what music does in ways that are unique. So that was one reason that, that the films of Pixar were helpful. The other reason is that Pixar films are hugely popular, um, at least in Western American culture, to the point that I've read statistics that uh, Finding Nemo, for example, and I think this is actually in the book. If it's not, it should be. Um, was uh, I think sixty-five percent of the American population saw Finding Nemo within the year of its release, which is just a, a staggering sort of uh, statistic. Because what other text or product or book or piece of art does sixty-five percent of the American population see? I, I don't think there is one. Um, you know, maybe. <laughs> Something like the Super Bowl, uh, you know, uh, might rival that. But, but this really is we're thinking about um, broader notions of of meaning making. Uh, Pixar films, at least, I think there's an argument can be made, are one of those sort of shared resources that we've all got. So that's why I picked Pixar. Um, but in terms of of the music, it really was interesting. Um, I sort of just said, oh, this will be an interesting case study, um, and it was again supposed to be kind of a final concluding chapter. And as I went through it there was this really sort of decided shift in how they used music or put music to use in their films. Um, now, again, Pixar is kind of a boutique uh, studio, so a small number of people are, are working on the projects. Um, but as soon as they shifted uh, who was composing for their, for their films, um, some pretty noticeable, I think, at least I, I argue, um, things happen in terms of how the audiences uh, engage in those movies. So early on, uh, they really were using um, often a what's uh, called Mickey Mousing, essentially, which is um, a way to, to talk about how music is used really more as like a sound effect, and it, and it, and it mimics um, characters' actions. Um, you see this a lot in, in children's films because it, it really telegraphs um, not only what, uh, a character is is doing, but um, how it might sound uh, really when when there's not a, a a sound effect out there to make, for example, um, a a slinky dog you know go up and down uh, the stairs. Um, so uh, early on in animation, this was uh, was pretty often the case that that musical instruments functioned as sound effect um, to telegraph to the audience, here's what's going. This is a real flesh and blood sort of space um, that the music actually fleshed out. Well, Pixar uh, inherited that sort of tradition and um, was uh, ostensibly, these films were for kids um, and they still are really. I mean, that's sort of their target demographic. Um, and so they used a lot of those same practices in terms of music. Um, now they also had uh, in, in the early films, Toy Story, Toy Story 2, um, even in Monsters, Inc. and others, um, you have your traditional uh, soundtrack, some, some underscoring by, by an orchestra, uh, but a lot of it's uh, lyrical. Um, Randy Newman um, uh, doing some sort of uh, a, a lyrical kind of synopsis um, of the films. Um, but as soon as you get to uh, Finding Nemo, um, you, you see this interesting uh, kind of shift in the way that music is used, and all of a sudden... Um, music isn't uh, mimicking uh, characters' activities and behaviors as sound effect. Music now has moved into this other register within 
you know, the, the, the film space, really, the narrative space, um, that is a bit more ambiguous, um, a, a bit less clear, and, and in my reading of it, um, lends itself to uh, something more mysterious, and actually something mysterious in both good, bad ways, um, that there is there's potential in how you read into that film, but then there's also sort of a darkness to it that that isn't uh, what you would usually consider to be something for children. Um, and and neither of the, this sort of shift is not something that is good or bad. I mean, the, the, I love the uh, the first, um, you know, four or five uh, Pixar movies. I, I, <laughs> I, used, I would watch them literally religiously. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> um, but it is just a shift in how they use music. And I think one of the byproducts of that is that uh, a larger uh, demographic could connect with them um, emotionally. And this is getting back to sort of your initial question of how does music connect to and how is it for the audience? In both cases, um, you've got uh, uh, for a, a, a child who's trying to make sense of this narrative world – you have music functioning in a way that really is at a child's level. That's that's very clearly telling them what these characters are doing, um, and not just what they're doing, but how the characters feel. Um, so emotions are one of the, the hardest things to, to relate in an animated context. Um, and not just what the characters feel, but then the, the next step is how you, as the person receiving this narrative, are supposed to feel about what you're seeing. Um, and early on, it's it's very clear. It's not really in question who's bad and who's good. Um, it's not really in question when Woody and Buzz uh, are enemies and when they're sort of reconciling. Those are all pretty clear in terms of a musical reading of the story and really even the narrative as a whole. Um, I suggest that with Finding Nemo, you see the shift that all of a sudden things become a little less clear. And, and that's where um, it connects with an audience that isn't simply children but is also adults but at the same time presents really some narratives that children especially certain ages of children might find troubling and and, and parents might not want their children watching so uh, Nemo becomes really an interesting reflection on uh, not just a fish who he runs into um, <laughs> a fish with uh, you know a retrograde amnesia uh, but it's really about uh, parenting and loss and all of the fears that parents really deal with when it comes to raising a child in this big sort of uncharted territory known as, as modern life. Um, and for me, it's it, it can't be boiled down to simply the narrative elements of that. It can't be boiled down to simply the visual elements of that because with Pixar, the visuals have always been stunning. They've always been on the cutting edge of, of CGI. Um, but really it's the music that allows us to, to interpret these films as functioning differently, both um, in terms of across the, the sort of oeuvre of, of Pixar, but then also uh, within the broader culture of how those films have been received, um, if you're looking at it from a, a musical perspective. Yeah. Now, you also uh, take a very extended look at Up, uh, the yeah. film Up. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, again, this is sort of autobiographical and I'm convinced, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things, uh, in sort of the academy and in religious studies and, and anthropology, um, is, is the recognition that, that we're all implicated in the, in our research. Um, and, 
there's, you know, we need some objectivity. We need the ability to step back from and be at a distance from things. And I think that's helpful and valuable. But I also think we, most people, most research projects are driven, I think, by some core elemental experience that we've all had that, that plants this sort of question that, you know, that's the matrix. It's like a splinter in your mind or your brain that you can't get away from. Um, that really drives you, uh, and most of the best research in my mind comes out of, is birthed out of some of these things. And for me, um, it was my own personal experience of, of watching up as uh, a, a person who had walked with his wife through numerous miscarriages. And you get this little glimpse of, of up the, this Carl and Ellie montage um, that has music over it that becomes the theme song for the entire film. Um, and, and it's, I call it the married life montage that really strikes at the emotional core of the film as a whole. Um, and might even those who are detractors for the film would say that's, that's, that is the heart of the film. And after that, it's all downhill. (laughs) Um, I, I disagree, but, um, really it was this, this moment where I was like, oh, as a viewer, I'm sitting here and I am captivated, you know, emotionally wrecked and connected to this film all at once in a very brief amount of time. I mean, this is what I would describe as a powerful sort of moment. What is going on here? And so part of what I wanted to explore in the Pixar movie in particular was, uh, was what's happening um, when a filmgoer sits down and watches this children's film and is engaged emotionally at this level um, especially because that scene is not only animated, so it's all constructed, but also it's essentially done as silent cinema. It, it, it harkens back to what we would call, quote-unquote, silent film. So it is a montage. There is no dialogue. The only sound that there's, there's not even sound effects. The only third is music. Um, what's interesting about what happens there, most uh, for... <laughs> Spoiler alert for anybody listening <laughs> that hasn't, you know, it's, it's up. You've, you should have seen it by now. Um, Ellie dies early on, and, um, and it's tragic. And Carl Fredrickson, the, the, the protagonist in the film, uh, meets up with this little stow on a journey to Paradise Falls. Well, the whole, the whole film is hooked on this notion that Carl thought he didn't have a, an adventure with his wife, and that he missed it, that they, they never got an opportunity to go on this adventure. And so um, as you look how this, this theme song, this, this leitmotif is, is uh, placed or structured across the entire film narrative from beginning to end, early on it, it arrives and we hear it in moments where Carl is sort of nostalgically longing for um, his now uh, deceased wife. And and it and it sort of represents in that way um, what we would normally think of as as the lover song. So, um, if you think of any sort of rom com, uh, you might have this this theme song that comes up, a, a little number that happens anytime the lovers unite or anytime they're thinking of each other or any you know, it's expressing what can't be said or put in pictures, and that is my emotional connection to this other character. Um, well, this happens pretty pretty uh, uh, consistently in in up. Um, until that narrative moment when, um, at the very end, uh, Carl is sitting in his home that he's, you know, suspended by balloons and landed on on Paradise Falls. He's looking through this picture book, and it turns out um, that Ellie, his his wife, had in fact had an adventure with him, and 
he's sort of overwhelmed by the fact that he missed it and how, you know, it's, it's very heartwarming, etc. Um, but then the music starts functioning in a different way. That same theme song, um, we now hear time and time again throughout the rest of the film as Carl shifts his emphasis from the, the sort of nostalgic longing to a forward-looking a- anticipation of what's now my life adventure. Um, and this is all rooted around his relationship with this young Boy Scout stowaway who happens to be have kind of a father who's out of the picture, um, and now this uh, sort of octogenarian who one to live life with. Um, so the the theme song now is played um, in moments where they're experiencing adventure together. And so <clears throat> part of how I, I the point I make um, in the book with this song and how it works in, in, um, in Up is that when music functions in this way, when it starts detaching itself from being so clearly tied to a character or, or an event that happens and starts almost, almost in this sort of meta way commenting on the film, um, it, 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 it calls to mind the fact that the film-going space is actually structured around um, what I would call a metaphysic. Um, and I found this really interesting because music, uh, getting back to even the how does it function for an audience, is really one of the, the few things that, that, that mostly can move in and out of the diegesis. And for anyone who hasn't read the book or doesn't know this term, the diegetic world is really just the world of the characters, the stuff they hear and see and think and feel. Um, there's the extra diegetic world that usually is, is the world of the narrator or the implied narrator. Often it's the filmmaker. Um, and then there's the world of the audience, the non diegetic. Um, and most of the time it's, it's pretty clearly, uh, distinct those different realms, those different spheres. Um, because very rarely do characters address the audience directly. That's the fourth wall of theater. Um, that does happen, but very, very rarely. And when it does, it it works or it doesn't. Um, but music, unlike anything else in a film, is all, always going back to spheres. Um, and this is what happens, I think, in the Pixar example, that something that was rooted in the diegetic sphere now all of a sudden jumps out and is, is addressing the audience and the characters from this realm side of their world. It's it now becomes this this realm of reality that exists beyond um, or outside or underneath and what they know and, and, and hear and, and think. And so because of that, that's where I start talking about um, how music actually functions um, in film with an implied, I might even, I, I hesitate to use this word, but but it, it, it describes it better than anything else, but this metaphysic that that within this broader cultural context of that sort of a flattened material world, m- most of the meaning that's derived in film when it comes to music is, is leveraging and depends upon the fact that there are multiple levels of reality that music is, is moving in out, uh, moving in through, and that music can impinge upon this material world from somewhere beyond. Mm. Uh, kind of where I, I, that's the setup for Pixar, that's sort of the final kind of thought and how I sort of launch into the rest of the book in terms of uh, religion and specifically uh, Christian theology. Yeah, and uh, I, I was going to ask you about that because you, uh, you know, much of what you're doing in the book is, is saying how music can function in a theological capacity. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and you do definitely situate this within a, a Christian theological tradition. 
But it seems like you're almost pushing for more of a, a broader sense of what theology yeah. can be. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, even from our conversation, yeah. it seems like this. So uh, perhaps what, what does theology denote in scoring transcendence? How, how are you yeah. conceiving of it? And- yeah, I, you know, I would probably, um, I would describe it most closely to, to basically lived religion. Um, I'm, I am been shaped quite a lot. And again, more recently, um, uh, Charles Taylor's a secular age, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but then um, a guy named uh, James K. Smith wrote a basically a synopsis of it, and so I and I just recently reread that. Um, but there's a there's a sense in which um, I want to broaden theology from outside or to, beyond what most people think of as sort of orthodox. Uh, <laughs> rooting out heresy from this particular tradition and describing um, and uh, proclaiming sort of a biblical interpretation for life. Um, and, and biblical meaning uh, the Hebrew uh, Bible and the Christian New Testament. Um, I think that's what most people conceive of as theology, that, that it, you're sort of a gatekeeper to this particular religious tradition. And there's a sense in which that is, that is true. Um, but in the broader sense, um, we're entering the sphere of, of reality where um, we are haunted by the world that used to be very porous and open to spiritual realities, whereas in sort of the modern um, the modern climate, uh, belief itself is the most unbelievable option out there. <laughs> and yet, because we're kind of haunted by this past culture and this past uh, way of being human that assumed some transcendent realm. Um, at least as I read the culture in terms of like anthropology, you see all of this where people searching for meaning, uh, imminent frame. And that's the Charles Taylor sort of language. A, a purely material world um, is all we've got. And so we're, we're, we're striving for some sort of meaning. And most of the time that, that striving, that, that, that quest for making sense of our life in the world happens um, in art and aesthetics, and principally in, in sort of American culture uh, in film and in film going. Um, and so I'd like at least to see theology sort of expanded to say, okay, what is that sort of shared quest for meaning? What are the impulses behind that? Um, how do we make sense of it uh, as, as emotional creatures, as, as holistic uh, human beings that are in, interacting and intersecting with uh, other, as I said before, um, other religious tribal identities, other political identities, other national identities. And then to tack onto that, how might that actually make a case for the role of religion in modern life? Um, because there are some, <laughs> and again, it's kind of like fundamentalist religious people. Um, they often are the the loudest, and so they get the most press. The same thing with kind of the the new atheists. Um, some of the the fringe groups are the loudest, and they get the most press. But but there is a a tension. There is cross pressure, I think, within modern life of of people saying there there is no role for religion in the modern world, and in fact, most religious expressions end in violence and 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 sort of dehumanizing uh, approaches to uh, our shared humanity. And, there's a thing. Well, in fact, uh, we all are interacting on a level playing field. 
Um, and we'd like to expand the conversation to say, what is this quest for meaning? What does meaning even look like in the modern world? And um, how might we use film in particular, exploring that together? So um, that's a w really long-winded way to say that I think um, I want to conceive of theology more in terms of how do we collectively share and construct meaning? Um, and what are some of those resources uh, traditionally, historically, um, that we can draw upon uh, to help us make sense of, of what's going on there. Yeah. Now, um, there's there's a lot to this book, which uh, we won't have time to go through everything, of course. Um, sure. But the one thing I did want to hear your thoughts on um, is at the end you have a short reflection on the Tree of Life, which uh, is uh -huh. obviously this very unique audiovisual encounter. Um, yeah. So how might we begin to think about Tree of Life using your approach? Tree of Life is really a, an interesting example for a number of reasons. Uh, if for no other reason, then it is so explicitly musical and in, in, in how it's telling its story um, that it, it basically demands some sort of, of, of musical analysis or at least musically aware approach. Um, and it it is self-consciously, I think, by Malik, um, not a mainstream movie. And so in that sense, it's, it, it's not fair <laughs> to use this as an example. But at the same time, I think it is because it's, um, you know, he's one of, one of the great auteurs, I think. And interestingly, now making more and more movies, even though he's made like four in the, in the last 30 years. <laughs> um, but, but in Tree of Life in particular, because Malik is doing something that's not rooted in traditional narrative um, in, in terms of, of, it, of its plot, in terms of really even trying to tell a linear anything, but it's more reflection, a meditation. Um, I think in the book I even call it a, a prayer, really. It's, it's, it's Malik's sort of religious, I, I would say even trying to give the viewer a sense of what his own sort of religious experience is. Um, and it's interesting to me that while, yes, he's a filmmaker and he uses visuals in, in amazing ways um, to do that, he, he calls upon music because there's, there's, a role that music plays in communicating that religious experience that 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 nothing else can. Um, and so, if, if I were saying go into Tree of Life to, to how do you think about that film in particular musically, the couple things I would say pay attention to are one where uh, where music uh, arises and if it's repeated. So, if a particular piece um, happens in one place and then it crops up again, even in a different form. Um, that is saying something, I think it's connecting those, those scenes, those moments, those characters in some way. So, um, once, once you identify that, of course, it's up for interpretation what that way is. Um, but that's, that's the fun of it. Um, but at least on the analytical side, it's, <clears throat> it's saying something that this piece of music was used by the filmmaker to call out, uh, these various moments. Um, the second thing I think about is, um, what is the relationship between the music and the images that we see? Um, I think in one part of the book, I talk about this sort of maybe apocryphal moment with Hitchcock and one of his composers. Um, and they were filming out in the middle of the ocean and there's back and forth between the composer and Hitchcock. And I can't remember which one it was, but uh, basically saying, what kind of music would you like for this scene? And Hitchcock says, we're in the middle of the ocean. Where do you think 
you know, come on, let's be realistic. Where do you think, a, you know, a 30 piece orchestra is going to be in the middle of the ocean? <laughs> and, and the composer replies back very succinctly, would you please, and this is all by courier right back in the day. Uh, would you please ask Mr. Hitchcock where he thinks the cameras come from? Um, and, and, and the whole question is, well, none of this is real. It's not, it, 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 cameras don't really exist out there. So it's all artificial to some degree. The question is, how is it that music is relating to the image? How is it that it's, that it's connecting there? Um, and in Malik's case, often um, the images are more just these sort of abstract kind of pretty pictures, really. Not always, but in many cases. And in those cases, the music comes to the foreground. It's not, um, it's not what we would call background music, uh, because in fact, he's pushing it into our faces in some very clear ways. Um, I actually watched the film the first time. I didn't see it in the theaters and um, watched it on DVD. And at least on the DVD I saw it at very beginning says, please turn your volume up all the way before viewing this. And, and part of it's because um, uh, the volume changes, uh, the dynamics change, um, and that's all on purpose. So, so that if you get a scene, um, like the creation scene that a lot of viewers were just kind of, they, they lost it there. Um, I know my wife did anyway. <laughs> she kind of checked out at that point. Um, and, but, but the music comes to the foreground. And so it's saying, basically, pay attention to me in a way that it's not in other moments. So depending upon where the music exists in relation to the images that we see changes how we think about both the way the music's functioning and then also whatever interpretation we might give of it. Um, another example that's more broadly has to do with just the soundtrack um, are there's various moments of whispered dialogue um, that are that are kind of traced throughout the film. And we often, it's not clear the location from where these these bits of dialogue come from. Are they are they located in the in the narrative? Um, at one point, we hear the the mother whispering over the the creation scene just before or Formosa uh, uh, music plays, and and it's very very unclear. Not only who's talking, I mean that's a little more clear, but but from where this this sound is coming from, from where these words are coming from, and so that's another way that that Malik sort of plays with the conventions of film. Um, because most dialogue is very rooted in a, a, a body, a physical person that's inhabiting a physical space in the film. Um, and if it's not, it's usually very clearly a narrator, um, a, 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 a disembodied narrator, but that we know is telling the story to the audience. Well, all of a sudden you have Malik playing with these and you have narration that's coming maybe from a character, but, but, but at no narrative moments and whispered in this creation context. Um, and so it just raises these, these critical questions that we have to ask of what's the location of, of the sound from where is it coming and to whom is it addressing? Um, and then how does it interact with the images we see? And probably the final little bit um, that I think about is especially those moments where the music is recycled. Um, what, what broader cultural musical landscape is Malik drawing from to invest his film with meaning? Um, and so uh, in, in the cases I draw out in the book, um, these pieces um, have, have a history long before they find their, their home in uh, the Tree of Life. 
And each one of those uh, musical pieces that have history, um, I would argue, uh, really help us understand what Malik was intending by it, but then also help us understand how we're going to engage it depending upon um, the, the extraneous meanings that we as viewers bring in. Because music exists um, so pervasively in our culture, it's pre-shaping us as we walk into the film. Um, and so those would be some of the handful of things that I'd think about as I look at Tree of Life in particular. Um, and if you haven't actually gone and watched it, or watched it yet you it's it's a must see uh even though not everyone loves it it's i think uh <laughs> um i think it's something that you need to see especially when it comes to to the interaction between music and image hmm. um well cutter you, there's a lot to this book that uh we haven't even addressed so i do apologize um but before we let you go um I'm sure listeners would be very interested to hear what you're up to now, what kind of projects you might be working on, things perhaps that are going to be coming out in the future. Sure. A um, couple projects right now that I'm working on. Um, uh, I'm working on a title, but essentially on TV um, and uh, hitting along some of the same lines of, of audio vision of how contemporary persons re- really and have a visual sort of cultural landscape, um, but specifically how the role of, of convergence and participatory media is really seeing a, a sort of a golden age, um, but not in the traditional form of what we think of as TV being TV. So not TV in the sense of like a TV set um, with broadcast network program, but more if we you know think about the Golden Globes, I don't know if you watch those, but... Um, I don't works. Don't quote me on this. Uh, almost no networks received major awards this year. It was all Amazon Prime and Netflix and um, other basically streaming services. So it's really interesting to me the way that um, storytelling is is shifting in our culture, and some of it is uh, whereas some of the uh, people that were working in film before. I read an article um, here. Um, and just before, I think Variety released an article saying that most of the filmmakers who are uh, presenting their stuff at Sundance or are just there on the ground trying to get their projects purchased are actually using film as their springboard for making TV. So they're hoping that HBO or Netflix or Amazon will pick them up and, and, and hire them to tell these sort of episod- episodic, serialized, long-form audiovisual um, and to me, that says something about the cultural imagination. It says something about ritual life. Um, it says something about how technology interfaces with with religion and with uh, sort of human culture. Um, and so that's that's the current project I'm working on. Um, the The next one will actually be a little bit maybe a return to some of these things I hit on with, uh, especially uh, there will be blood and some of Paul Thomas Anderson's stuff in the. And that is I'm really interested in this shift from people who were self-identified as adherents to religion and now have shifted to they self-identify as being persons of no religion, what's typically being agnostic. Um, so kind of a, a deconversion. Um, and I'm interested actually in how aesthetics uh, is involved in that um, so that our religious traditions, um, or some of them anyway, not all of them, but some of them um, are kind of have a, uh, a lack of an aesthetic imagination and are in fact uh, seeing 
multiple people move to an, an atheism that is actually uh, shot through with um, an appreciation for art and the aesthetic um, and aesthetic experiences that's really functioning as religion, um, but detached from any sort of traditional or um, uh, mainline or orthodox sort of faith. Um, so those are those are kind of related, but are two distinct projects that I'm I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, they sound great. Good luck, Hutter. Perhaps we'll, we'll thank uh, you so much. Have you back again? Yeah, hopefully uh, next book that comes out, even if it's not on film, uh, will be a, a podcast. It. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Cutter Calloway about his book Scoring Transcendence. Contemporary Film Music as Religious Experience, which was published with Baylor University Press in 2013.